0: Good evening, everyone. I know I'm not the face you were expecting to see up here tonight, to, uh, as you were probably thinking, yeah, we're going to finish out Revelation tonight. So uh, as you heard earlier, Pastor Michael is down. His, him and his family have been hit by the, f- I guess it's the flu. I think that that's what they're thinking anyway. So just keep being in prayer for them. And if you would, turn with me for now to Psalm 7. We got to play a little swap as I was going to be preaching at the end of the month, and surprise, it's tonight. So I'm excited to be here with you. I love walking through these with you um, here on Wednesday night. And As you're turning to Psalm 7, tonight we are going to specifically uh, consider how we should uh, handle false allegations and slander against us. In 1846, Alexander Dumas published his tome that is known as The Count of Monte Cristo. You might know Dumas from also like the Three Musketeers, stories like that, um, these adventure stories, swashbuckling style stories. But uh, he published The Count of Monte Cristo with the aid of his conceptual ghostwriter, August Mackay. And if you're not uh, if you're not either a an avid literist, and yes, I did google that word, and the urban dictionary told me it was right is a word, um, or if you 're not a fan of the mid 90s PBS masterpiece wishbone, you might not have an idea of what um, the count of monte Cristo 's all about, but it spans between about twelve thousand to 15, uh, twelve sorry twelve hundred to fifteen hundred pages uh, each, depending on which publication you acquire the audiobook that i 've uh, listened to, <laughs> boasts a runtime of 52 hours and 41 minutes. So it is, a, it is an undertaking. And it has seen itself to the silver screen for three adaptations as well. And it's a story of political intrigue, despicable betrayal, slanderous injustice, and meticulously planned revenge. It's the tale of a 19-year-old newly minted captain... In the shipping industry, Edmond Dantes, as he is falsely accused of being in league with Napoleon Bonaparte as he's trying to come back and regain power in France, and they see this as treason against the crown. It's not true, but he's still accused of it. This act is perpetuated by greed, covetousness, and lust of some of his closest friends and confidants. And it cost him everything. It cost him his occupation and position in society. It cost him his beautiful fiancé. It cost him his ability to care for his elderly father during his last and dying days. And it cost him his freedom for 14 years. The first six of those years are uh, imprisonment uh, in solitary confinement, And the last eight are are not lonely, only due to a mistake of his cellmate next door who tunneled into his room instead of getting out. And he's an Italian priest, an Italian uh, father, who um, takes him under his wing and they form a fast friendship. Edmond is then schooled in every subject under the sun by this very knowledgeable priest while helping with tunnel work, trying to get out. They work together. And this vast education allows him, it keeps his mind sharp, and then he's able to to deduce, man, I can't say it, to deduce what happened to him. Why is he there? He figures it all out. And, man, is he hot. He is hot. The priest eventually dies in prison, and that is his chance to escape. I'm not, I'm not giving away all the spoilers, so you can still go read it or listen to it. But um, he's able to escape, and then he spends nine, nine years in seclusion, setting up his persona as the Count of Monte Cristo, only to return to society as this Count who everyone wants to be, everyone wants to know, everyone wants to have something to do with. And he goes after the men that are responsible for his betrayal at this time. Not only these men, but all of their families, all of their loved ones. He's looking for utter ruin, scorched earth on these folks. While this is an understandable response from a human perspective, tonight we're going to look at what it means to have a godly response to slander and false accusations. So let's turn together to Psalm 7 and read it together. A shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O oh Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with you, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and it falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Father, you are the Lord Most High. You are righteous, and Father, I pray that as we turn in your word tonight that you equip us, that you ready us for times where we may face accusations, we may face uh, slander, we may face things that are just plain lies told about us, that tarnish our reputation, that tear apart our family, that stain the reputations of those that we associate with, Father, may we see in Your Word how we are, how You would have us respond, who we are to lean on, who we are to have our closest confidant. We thank You, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at the setting first. Those are the little words. Um, right up above the psalm, before we even get to verse one, it's important not to skip over those simply because they provide context for us in what this passage is really about, what it's saying. So first, we see that this is a shigion of David. So David wrote it. It's a shigion, and this is the the, the only other place that this word shigion is used in Scripture. Say that five times fast, why don't you? Um, the only other place it is used in Scripture is Habakkuk 3 in verse 1. The root of Shigeon in Hebrew is shagah, and it means to go astray, to meander, or to wander. And that really reflects in the psalm, because this psalm has a lot less cohesion in stanza size, in stanza content, in the thread that's woven between stanzas, than a lot of the other psalms that we have studied already or will study again. It meanders from one topic or point into another that, though related, does not have the thorough development in the stanza before. And David is pouring out his soul in a different approach And really this this structure gives this psalm a stilted and very raw feel as you're reading it, as you're reflecting on it. Similarly, in this introduction, there is Cush the Benjamite, and this is the only time we hear about him. So we don't know exactly who he is, though his being a Benjamite lends itself and offers a little bit of a peek at possible motivations. Uh, Benjamin was King Saul's tribe. And King Saul, you can see in 1 Samuel 22, 7 through 8, that he bought and brought along his tribe through family ties, bribery, and coercion. Their acts of injust- injustice were fueled by tribalism. Sounds really close to things we see even now, right? They were a very petty but loyal group. As we go through the Samuels, we have in the account of David, King Saul himself pursued David, could not stand him, knew that he was going to get the throne and he just could not stand that, Uh, the knowledge that the throne had been taken from him and his family. Um, After Saul's death, the opposition to David, assuming the throne, was spearheaded by the Benjamites and led by Saul's uncle, Abner, and it took eight years to secure the Benjamites' allegiance to David, eight years to unite all of Israel under one banner, shimei was a man of Benjamin that met David and his entourage as they're fleeing Jerusalem as Absalom is coming in in his coup. Shimei comes out and hurls curses and rocks and insults and everything he can at the king, God's chosen man who was king. And then later, in 2 Samuel 20, we see that Sheba, guess where he came from, the tribe of Benjamin, led another revolt that ended in his head being secured by a peaceable elderly woman who didn't want to see her town torn up. So all that being said, we don't know who Cush is. We don't know exactly what he said. We don't know when he said it. We don't know why or where or how. All we know is found in the context of the psalm, and specifically in verses 3 through 5, indicating that David is accused of being a backstabbing, traitorous rogue who takes cheap shots while looking to advance himself at the expense of others. So, with the setting laid out, how does David respond to this? He begins with a plea. Opening with two names of God that are distinct yet complementary, he says... He says, O Lord, my God, the Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, that's his covenant name, the name that is consistently used with utmost reverence, so much so that on a day-to-day basis, just for regular use, they changed the name to Jehovah so that they would not slip up and use God's covenant name in vain. But that name is paired with my God, Elohim. It's, an, it's a personal and affectionate title. So covenant, reverential, personal, affectionate, together. And Elohim actually is a plural form of the word that we get when we, when we translate God with a little g. In Hebrew and many other languages, you would pluralize something to reference a singular when you are giving a sign of supremacy or might, contributing supremacy or might to something. So by calling him Elohim, he is the God above all gods. He is the God. The psalm says that his almighty yet intimate God is his refuge, his defense, his hideaway from the cares and troubles of the world. and. He needs a place for safety because he is being pursued by his enemies. Verse 2 depicts both his pursuers and the damaging effects of slander. David employs an image from his shepherding days. As he was out watching dad's sheep, he was often fighting off, chasing off predators from feasting on the flock. And he likens his soul to a carcass that has been ravaged by lions. And I know that we've all just eaten, but have you ever watched lions eat their prey? It is not a pretty sight. They don't uh, humanely put down their catch and break out the little forks and knives and sit down to a little proper dainty feast. No, they are uh, animals, quite literally. They tear off chunks of flesh with their claws and teeth, often starting with the internal organs, drenching themselves with no shame and simply just eating to survive. This imagery is also used, this this imagery of a of ravaging is also used in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, when it depicts how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's accusers slandered them for not bowing down to a graven image that was of the king. Daniel 3, 8 says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The words for a maliciously accuse" literally translates to ate their pieces. They came after them. There was no mercy. So, again, slander is likened to this brutal devouring of flesh. Now, that should sink into us, too, for the times that we are tempted to this. We're not just saying little things that might chip away at somebody that we don't like. We're not saying little things that might just get on their nerves and get under their skin or maybe get their best friend not to like them anymore. No, we are brutally tearing at them. They are brutally tearing at us when, when they are slandering us. But now, like I said, apply that visual to the soul of the accused, the slandered. Rending my soul to pieces is a tame description when you get down to the nitty-gritty of what lions do to their prey. We all turn somewhere when hard times hit. When we're slandered, when we're accused, when any hardship comes. We take refuge in something or someone. And we are made with the need to express that discomfort and displeasure. But out of all the outlets that this world has to offer, true relief, true refuge is found only in God. That's how he created us. He created us not to run to our spouse, to our brother, to our sister, to our mother, to our father, to our pastor, to anyone else. Now there's nothing wrong with sharing your struggles with these trusted sources, the Bible tells us as brothers and sisters in Christ to help bear each other's burdens. But it's all about where you turn for the deepest possible relief. Where are you looking for true fulfillment, true refuge when it comes to these things? And that's really hard to remember in times of extreme pain and discouragement, discomfort, And yet we should, we absolutely should, we're called to. So after David's plea, we have his probity. After pleading with God to be his refuge, David asserts his innocence. Probity is just his upright character, his highest of moral character. And he seeks and speaks of his high standards of morality as it has been evident in all his dealings. Even those with Saul while being hunted, as Saul is pursuing him round mountains, through the woods, everywhere, David had the chance to end Saul two times, and he didn't do it. So he is innocent. He is claiming innocence in verses Three through five, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground, and lay my glory in the dust. So even though he's asserting his innocence, his high moral character, he also knows that he is completely capable of heinous sins. That's why he doesn't claim sinless perfection. In verse 3, that first line, O Lord my God, if I have done this, that specific accusation, if I have done this, and what did he say should happen to him if he has done this, if he has offended in this way? He says, Let me be trampled into the dust. May I be like a corpse on the battlefield. May my enemy have victory over me because I deserve it. If I did what I am being accused of, I deserve all this punishment. I deserve their indignation, but I know I didn't. So we should be willing to take inventory of our hearts, our souls, our minds, to make sure that we truly haven't offended before we uh, before we. Claim our innocence. Then and only then should we declare our innocence before the Lord. And then and only then do we proceed to ask for justice. In verses 6 through 7, we find just that. A request for justice. Arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Take, uh, Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. This is a, like I said, this is a request for justice. It's a legal pronouncement, an official and authoritative declaration of innocence. And God and David asked God to perform three actions in verse 6. He says, arise, lift yourself up, and awake. Arise in your anger. Don't put a lid on it. Don't let this injustice pass without decisive action. The target of that indignation should be this accusing enemy, this slanderous enemy, this pursuer. We see the next action, lift yourself up, Against the fury of my enemies, stand between me and my pursuer. Raise yourself up. Defend me physically if it comes to it, but clear my name in the sight of everyone. This is the picture of a courtroom with God sitting firmly on the judge's bench. And then finally, the third action, awake. Now we know that God's not asleep. We're told later in Psalms that this is one of the reasons why we can trust him to keep us from all evil. Psalm 121.4 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So David's simply reiterating, act, rise up, awake, After we turn to the Lord with our complaints and confide our hurts in him, we leave the action in his hand. We've already called out to him. We've already said, Lord, this is wrong. This is injustice. And then David shows us that we leave it firmly in God's hand. We leave the job of defending us to him. There will be times in life where injustice just seemingly reigns unchecked in our lives. There will be times when the Lord equips us to be the tools of His justice for the good of others, but there will also be times where we have to leave the judgment in His hands and not pursue retribution apart from Him. Verses 8 through 16 show us God the protector. This is the biggest stanza, the biggest chunk of this psalm. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish righteousness, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies." He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, violence descends. We can trust God to judge justly. He is able to do this because of what the psalm says. He is the only one who can truly test the hearts and minds of the righteous and the wicked alike. Now, the Hebrews had a different understanding of where cognition and emotions sat within the body. We think of the mind as that's the intellect, that's our cognition, that is our thoughts. We think of the heart as how we feel. But when um, David wrote this, it was the heart and the kidneys. He wrote about the heart and the kidneys. God would test the heart and the kidneys, Now, I know that doesn't have the same level of ring and intelligibility to us, but the heart was considered to be the the place where thoughts, thoughts were formed, and there is something that rings true in that, even to our understanding today. The reason and the purpose behind identifying the kidneys as the seat of the emotions, the affections, is because the kidneys are protected. They're concealed deep within our fatty tissue. And this understanding fits so well because they're because because they're concealed so deeply, just like our affections, our intentions are concealed deeply within the recesses of our soul. In verse 10, the imagery begins to shift. Over the course of three verses, the psalmist moves us Uh, from the court of law and the Lord as a judge to preparing, to portraying him as a protective warrior. Now, I would say that a judge is a fairly more passive image than a warrior, than a protector, but the Lord is both simultaneously. But he's a righteous judge, and he's such a righteous judge because, in verse 11, he feels indignation every day. When considering verse 11, Charles Spurgeon said, He not only detests sin, but is angry with those who continue to indulge in it. We have no insensible and stolid God to deal with. He can be angry, nay, he is angry today and every day with you, ye ungodly and impenitent sinners. The best day that ever dawns on a sinner brings a curse with it. Sinners may have many feast days, but no safe days. From the beginning of the year even to its ending, there is not an hour in which God's oven is not hot and burning in readiness for the wicked who shall be as stubble, who shall be as fuel for the fire. God's holy offense at sin causes him to shrug off his judge's robes and wade onto the battlefield. The idea of Yahweh as a warrior is found repeatedly throughout the Old Testament when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and they look back and see the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian pursuers, catastrophically overwhelmed by the returning of the waters, they sang. Exodus 15, 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Jeremiah describes him as thus. Jeremiah 20:11 through 12, "But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble" They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they have not succeeded. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. And then finally, we get one more picture of whereas Exodus and Jeremiah were prophetic song um, speakings of how God acted. Now, we, we did see the horse and chariots thrown in the sea. But in 2 Kings 1935, there's a very visceral and real picture of the aftermath of God the warrior stepping out on the battlefield. 2 Kings 1935, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The Lord does not play around. The Lord, when it comes to wickedness, when it comes to sin, he is very decisive as a judge. And he is a warrior. We see that it continues that his, David says his shield is with God. It's a picture of a shield bearer, right? God is standing on the battlefield with David, fighting along beside him. That should be an image that comforts us in the midst of slander or accusations or anything else that might come our way, that the Lord is by our side, shield in hand, ready to hand that to us at a moment's notice. He is our shield bearer, fighting alongside. Our refuge and salvation is found behind his defensive weapon, his shield. But he not only covers us defensively, he prepares offensive weapons as well. And he deals with the unrepentant pursuer. We see in verse 12 that if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is honing that edge. He is honing the edge of his sword to such a point that it can do nothing but cut. We see that his bow is bent With a fiery arrow knocked and ready to be loosed. Now, a warrior doesn't just draw his bow back on the battlefield. Once that arrow is on the string, once that bow is brought back, there's nothing to do but let go. These arrows of judgment are ready to rain down on the heads of the wicked with nowhere to hide. The last four verses of this stanza see yet another shift. So we had the shift from um, God the judge to God the warrior, and now we shift to the focal point from being the Lord to the wicked himself, the wicked people themselves. And we are often so desensitized by the language of Scripture. The description of the lions ravaging the soul being one example. Here's another Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Think of how gruesome and disgusting it is to be impregnated by evil. To go through the birthing process, the birthing pains for lies. James uses the same language when it comes to temptation and sin. If you look at James 1, 14 through 15, he says that, but each person is tempted and when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So desire literally seduces us, fills us with sin, And we completely consent to this. The wicked completely consent to this. Sin matures in the lives of the wicked. Sin matures can very well mature in our lives and bring about spiritual and eternal death. But we present ourselves as whole and clean, sometimes on the outside, while we're housing death inside. This is the exact thing that Jesus condemned the Pharisees on. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. May this not be said of us? May we, as God's church, be putting to death sin in our lives? We should have no part in it. It should not find safe haven within the confines of our souls. God the judge looks on sin with utter contempt and is ready to mete out destruction to those who do not mortify their desires. So we should repent now while that judge's gavel has not yet fallen for the final time on our lives. And we should pray the same for the wicked. We should pray the same for those who slander us. We should pray pray the same for those who accuse us. The last verse, the last verse of Psalm 7 turns to praise. We've just come out of how mischief is falling onto the heads of the wicked, evil man, and David turns to praise. It's a celebration of God's righteousness, a celebration of, of our true defense. David sets his heart on God the entire time by reminding himself of who God is, who he is, and who the wicked are. And at the end of, the, of it all, after pouring out the pain and anguish of his slander rending his soul, all he can do is is sing praise to God. This shows us that there's no room for gloating, brothers and sisters. There's no room for gloating when judgment is met out on our enemies that are pursuing us. When confronted with the righteousness of God, first it should show us our own insufficiencies, as well as the justice that God is pouring out on our behalf. And we should lift our voices an awe-inspired song because he is worthy, period. Edmond Dantes realized the extremity, of his, extremities, uh, the extremity of his errors too late to reconcile and respond rightly. To respond with anything other than a cold plate of vengeance. And Dumas... The author pens these words as the conclusion of his tale. All human wisdom is contained in these two words wait and hope. We should wait and we should hope. Even the author of an adventure story can put that at the end of a tale because we wait in the Lord. We wait for him to be our defense and we hope in the Lord, knowing that he will do it. Revenge comes at the expense of our own souls. Your enemy may rend your life to pieces by their slander, but your reaction, your reaction to that malice, is what displays your true spiritual state. As God's church and his people, we are to respond by leaning into the only refuge that can supply true relief. And really, this is freeing, because this frees us from having to insist that we, be, we defend ourselves now. We clear our names now. Our slanderous enemies will face their judgment at the hand of a relentless judge and warrior. That should be enough for us. We find our refuge in him. We go to him for our defense, and we let the Lord do his work. At the end of it all, we should look to Christ for our example. First Peter 2, 19-25 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What were we called to? We were called to do good and suffer for it. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, may we return to you over and over again. As the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the souls that may be bleeding, that may have chunks torn out of them, that may be hurting and Causing us to weep and causing us very much spiritual, emotional pain. May we turn to you and act in the example of Christ. Father, the world wants us to lash out. There are plenty of examples all around us, even um, within the entertainment we consume, that just seems the right way to respond. They're going to get what's coming to them. They crossed us, so we have to defend ourselves. But Father, you've shown us through your servant David and through your word that that is not the answer. The only lasting refuge is you. You showed very clearly how effective you are at your workings. We know that you are the only righteous judge, the mightiest of warriors. So may we be reminded of it time and again. Bring these words to our minds and may we plant them deeply in our hearts so that in the instance of offense, we can simply run to you. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here tonight. I pray that you would give us grace as we continue to walk into this week. May we truly be your workmanship in our lives, walking in the good works that you have for us to do in front of this community, in front of our co-workers, in front of our families. And may you receive all the glory and the honor in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.